This week on Dig Me Out, it's a roundtable discussion on female artists of the 90s with special guests Annie Zaleski, Jim Copany, and Chip Midnight. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me as always, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay. Tim. 248, Jay. 248. You add those together, you double them, they equal each other. Something like that. I don't know. Two, four, and eight. You know what I'm talking about? No idea. <laughs> two plus two is four. Four plus four is eight. Two, four, eight. Oh, gotcha. There you go. Let's rock and roll. Jay, we have a round table. We, we like to do these once a, once a month. We like to talk about a topic from the 90s that's you know worth bringing a group of people together to chat about. We've done a whole bunch of different round tables this year. This month, we are doing a round table on women of the 90s and their influence and importance in alternative and indie rock. And we're going to talk to a group of people that uh, we have two returning guests and one rookie. I'm going to start with our rookie. Joining us from whereabouts, Annie, I believe you're in Northeast Ohio. Is that correct? I am. I am just outside of Cleveland, Ohio. Excellent. And you are a writer for such places as the AV Club, Salon, Cleveland Scene, Las Vegas Weekly, Vulture. Am I forgetting any? Uh, yes. Um, oh, yeah. Alternative Press. Um, I, God, you see, I'm blanking too. It's it's a lot. It's, it's a, a lot. lot of places. Yes. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very excited to uh, be on the show. And people can find you at Annie Zaleski at Annie Zaleski on Twitter. Correct. And um, your website is not up to date. No, that is that is like the one like albatross on my back that I'm like really need to redo my website. Either my blog. I have two websites, and both of them are woefully out of date. And I need to get them redesigned. And that that's always like, oh, I'm just going to teach myself CSS and redesign it. And it just doesn't happen. So one <laughs> well, of these days, one of these days. We all want to learn C, 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 what is it? CSS? CSS. Yes, CSS, but uh, don't have the time for whatever reason. So yeah. I can sympathize. Yeah. Joining us from the Windy City, Chicago, Illinois, returning champion, Jim Copany, Tank Boy, senior editor for the Chicagoist. Welcome, Jim. Hi, guys. How are you? Is it really windy there, or is it calm? Uh, well, actually, the last few days, it's actually been windy. Uh, the fall is upon us, and it sucks. We, 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 we've lost our four weeks of summer, and we're <laughs> now into the into the deep freeze. So is the Midwest and like the northern part of the country cold now? What's going on yeah. up there? Because it's 80 degrees down here. Oh, shut up. Shut up. Well, I'm asking thing. because I'm going to New York City tomorrow, and I'm like, wait a minute. I think I have to take a coat. So wait a minute, you're, you're in Austin, right? Yeah. Yes, it's cold up here. Yeah, yeah it's cold. <laughs> bring, bring a Great. coat. All right. I haven't worn a coat in a while. I'll have to dig something up. Bring your cardigan, Jay. Here okay. We, here you go. I'll look smart. There you go. And then also joining us from Columbus, Ohio, the pr- proprietor of kidsinterviewbands.com. You can find him at Chip Midnight and at Interview Bands on Twitter, Mr. Chip Midnight. Chip, how are you? I'm great. Well, the Browns lost today, so I'm not great, but that's typical. So, yeah, it's a Sunday night. How could that typical possibly Sunday affect night. you at this point? Yeah, I know it doesn't. Yeah, Chip, I'm numb. Our, I'm our, numb to do it. Chip, our character has just been, it's been emboldened 
It's now just iron. Nothing can affect us. That's true. That is absolutely think, true. Think of it that way. Nothing worse can happen. So I'm doing great. Chip, <laughs> what, what, what kind of music do these Browns play? <laughs> uh, sad and dismal. Yeah. Uh, Are you familiar with Yakety Sax from the Ben Hill Show? <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty much that for four hours. I think that is the official theme song of the Cleveland Browns. Oh, and the nice you, thing is, the nice thing is, no matter when this podcast airs, it's going to be the same thing. It's true. We'll have lost. Yes. So I want to get into this topic of women and the 1990s. And the reason why uh, I've been thinking a lot about this is because of charts. And I went back and I looked at all the album charts for the 1980s, the 1990s, the 2000s, and the 2010s to 15, whatever we're currently in. I want to throw some numbers at you to kind of get this started. In the 80s, 20 of the top 100 albums were by female artists. And in the top 25, Madonna and Whitney Houston were the only two. They both had two albums, but they were the only two in the top 25. In the 90s, it was 33. So a third of all the albums were by women that were in the top 100. And if you add the three soundtracks that were predominantly female-oriented, which was The Bodyguard, Titanic, and Waiting to Exhale, you actually take it up to 36. And in that case, you had four, five, six, eight, nine albums in the top 25 that were by women. And it sort of shifted. You had the R&B and pop of Madonna, Whitney Houston, to Shania Twain. So you had Country. Alanis Morissette had the number three album of the 90s, um, Jagged Little Pill. Anybody want to guess how many that sold? Just in the United States. Oh, like 15? That's it. 15 million. All right. Wow. And that number is important. We'll get to that number. And 33 million uh, worldwide for that album. But also in the top 25, where you had Britney Spears, Celine Dion a couple times, the Dixie Chicks, and Mariah Carey. So again, you still had pop. You had country making an impact. And then you had, I, I guess you'd call Alanis alternative. Would that, that would be the alternative to the pop in the country and the R&B that were popular. I, I think you have to make definitely a nod towards Alanis as now she's viewed as top 40 or whatever. Mm-hmm. But at the time, she was kind of a game changer. Like I oh, yeah. Q101 and the idea that she was a super powerful pop-oriented woman was a huge thing at the time. Absolutely. Like, it, it changed things. It, it, it was definitely, as much as you can look at like Kathleen Hanna and Bikini Kill and those, kid, and those, those cats... Alanis was like a weird anomaly that changed a lot of people's perception of music in the 90s. And she came out of the pop world, right? I mean, that was the story. I mean, early on, because she was she had she was like yeah. uh, Kylie Minogue. She had two pop albums in Canada, and uh-huh. right. failed. So she reinvented herself, came to the states, and then next thing you know, she's all of a sudden like the voice of a um, emboldened generation. Yeah. And like the funny thing was, when she came to the states, she was only like nineteen. Like they were ready. I interviewed Glenn Ballard earlier this year, and he was like, "Yeah, she was basically considered washed up at that point." by like the business 
And so, and they did this record and no one wanted to sign her. That's even the crazier thing that like people were like, eh, I don't know about this. And then when she finally got signed by Guy O'Siri, who was on Madonna's label, actually, um, he was doing A&R for Maverick. And there you go. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, this is a pretty good idea. Let's sign 15 other angry women. There, there's a whole movement. Right. So fact, was, I remember when she got signed in um, in Chicago, Q101, like started to champion her. All of us were just blown away. We had no idea. Never heard this stuff before. Um, and it opened up the door for bands like Burger Assault and other female-led bands. It was, it so, was so had she made the pivot prior to be, being signed? Like, was that album essentially demoed and that direction already set? You guys well, know? Basically, the demos that, like, on the record, the finished record, a lot of that stuff was basically the demos she did. Like, there were a couple things, like, Dave Navarro came and, like, added guitar to You Ought to Know. And, like, some of the other songs, I think they kind of buffed up the production but a lot of that stuff like was like first vocal take. Like she basically they she went in and she wrote all these songs with Glenn Ballard. They really hit it off. She wrote all these songs like off the top of her head. It was just like kind of sitting down writing these songs. And so she just basically sat down and it was all very like not deliberate and like not very, you know, calculated. That was just kind of like what she was thinking at that time. And that's exactly. what makes it even more incredible. Interesting. It definitely came out of nowhere. I remember when it broke. Yeah. Once. Very unexpected. You ought to know, like, I, I, I remember, I think I was like 15 or 16 when that hit. And that song, like, I remember sitting by the radio waiting to tape it because I loved the song so much and I needed to hear it because it was just so, it sounded so different than anything else that was around that's, at the time. It's funny, so you were, I, was, I was a lot older and I actually got an advanced um, copy of that album and I started playing it for... The funny thing is, I got this the exact same week as I got the Foo Fighters' first album, and I was playing them both for people, and people would be like, this Foo Fighters album, not bad. It's a lot of set. She's amazing. Yeah. And that kicked off, I think, when you look at the 90s, that was 95 when that happened. It seemed like after that, a whole slew of female artists that were not in, were not like in the pop realm, were not in the country realm, not in the R&B realm were able to rise up behind that. I'm thinking of like obviously like Sheryl Crow, but then you had like Meredith Brooks and Jewel the Jewel album would take off and it seemed like that was like a marker for the whole decade in terms of before and after where it didn't have to fall into like this very neat sort of pop or R&B format for it to be a successful album or single a lot of, and, and then a lot of those people fell into the trap of you know one hit wonders you know meredith brooks obviously and natalie Ambrulia and, and those sorts of artists at like one hit or joan osborne what do you think like preceded that like what sort of artists would have like set that up in terms of alanis or in terms of the whole sort of Just movement like the, whole, the whole thing like like let's say in the early 80s like what sort of bedrock was set well, that's a good question. Anybody have yeah. any opinions on that? Who who was sort of the setup for this? You know, I mean, there were a whole bevy of women, I think probably starting, gosh, in the 70s almost, that kind of set that up. I mean, obviously you have Hart, like Anne and Nancy Wilson always like wrote their own stuff. And in the late 70s, I mean, they were just badass. And then you had Joan Jett, too, who was kind of coming up in yeah, that like, time and then the early 80s. Like the queen. Yeah, Absolutely. 
And I mean, even early Madonna, it's it's easy to forget now just how like ridiculously different and almost punk rock she was earlier in her career. I mean, she was doing all this like really cool downtown dance pop stuff that was like totally different than anything else that was out there too. And I mean, she really basically, in the sense that she knew what she wanted, she knew who she was, she knew where her career wanted to go. And I think even that aesthetic and that spirit really kind of transferred over to the 90s as well. Pat Benatar and Annie Lennox, like Grace Jones. Oh, yeah. Like, these are all these are all previous female artists that I think informed a whole generation of both male and female artists. I think one of the things that we, we talked about a little bit with John Fine when he was on a couple weeks ago was that in a weird way, um, rock music became se- segregated. It felt like in the 90s, like there was, I think maybe because of these... Um, because of punk rock, kind of that aesthetic getting so ingrained in, in rock music, like it became a lot of bands became very male oriented to where I think this was a response of like, well, you know, you can have rock music that's not about moshing and, you know, it's it it, it, it speaks to females and it's, you know, it, it's the other side of like in the 80s where love it or hate it, you know, commercial hard rock, you know, hair metal and that sort of thing. You know, you go to those shows, it was a pretty pretty much a 50 50 split and through like the middle 90s things started to get kind of segregated where i don't know a lot of commercial rock became very male oriented and i think it alienated a lot of women so potentially that kind of set up a lot of these artists to have a platform they maybe didn't have before i mean i think what's interesting i think that some of that is true but i think uh, there's a the, i think the early 90s was a little bit more I guess, diverse and appealing to women maybe than people think. Like Nirvana, Nirvana absolutely had a huge female fan base. I mean, I was a huge Nirvana fan, but I know that they, you know, because Kurt was cute and Kurt also was very, you know, kind of the tortured artist kind of type, mm-hmm. archetype. I mean, that's that I think was very appealing to, um, you know, girls and boys. But like, I remember even in the early 90s, I mean, someone like Tori Amos. I mean, Tori Amos and Bjork. I mean, Tori's first record was 1991. And I mean, she was, you know, by the time, I mean, Under the Pink came out in 94. So, I mean, I think she was pretty well established and pretty big even before Alanis. Um, you know, and like Bjork's first record came out in like with the Sugar Cubes in the early 90s too. I mean, I think, I think there is something to that, but I think it's a little bit, uh, you know, it's a little bit maybe reductive to say that it was a little bit more segregated. That's just my opinion though. Well, yeah, I mean, think, think of if you brought up Kurt Cobain and Nirvana. I mean, Smells Like Teen Pierce is a Kathleen Hanna, is, a, is, is her phrase. So I'm not so sure yeah. that I think that the 90s were segregated. I think, if anything, the 90s were more of a time wherein bands started to mix and match, right? Well, I think, the, I, I think my point is that those bands, yes, appeal to both, the original wave, but the second wave kind of took parts of that and like say Bush and sort of that whole tier of bands. And then the third wave after that, it started to become very like, it went back to being, you know, male oriented, hard rock, commercial hard rock. Right. I mean like Godsmack and and those kinds of bands. It eventually like evolved into this very, like not very female friendly or centric. If you you think about like it, it, like one of your previous guests, like Baruch Salt, was definitely a version of a '90s band that was definitely hard rocking and commercially viable, and largely successful, right? 
Yeah, I think that I would actually argue with you, Jay, that it was the reverse that the 90s became more segregated when you had new metal and those sorts of bands enter the fray at the same time that like pop music started to have a resurgence in in like 96, 97 is when you see like the return of like blatant pop music in the Spice Girls and the Backstreet Boys. And, right. and that stuff well, starts to appeal to like young kids that might have been listening to, you know, a 14 year old in 1991 and a 14 year old in 1997 are listening to radically different music because of the way that the decade shifted. And then you also have the segregation of like the, the concert tours where Lollapalooza and the tours at the beginning of the decade started out as a very mixed sort of tour. And then by the end of the decade, you have Lilith Fair off on its own. You have the metal tour of Ozfest off on, the, off on its own. You have Warp Tour off on its own. You have the jam bands on the Horde Tour. All the music, not necessarily by gender, but just by style, everything sort of sort of split up by the end of the 90s because they realized that you know putting these package tours together would be more profitable if you have a more streamlined lineup that could appeal to, a, a I guess, a, a more narrow listener base. And um, that, to me, is where the segregation started to, started to happen a bit yeah. more. That's what I'm talking yeah. about. I'm talking about yeah. the 95 and it after. A, it was more of a sonic segregation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because the funny thing is, now we've, we've almost come full circle. Because if you think about, I don't know, big artists in the, in the 90s, like, for instance, Kali Minogue went off and did stuff with Nick Cave, which was considered weird. Now we've come full circle, and now we've got um, Miley Cyrus touring with the Flaming Lips, which who knew that was going to happen, and like they were going to actually do a tour together. Like, it's almost in in my mind a physical manifestation of the promise of the '90s to actually crossing over all the boundaries and being like, we really don't care. Like all these things kind of work together. Gender doesn't matter. We just care about collaborating on good music, if that makes any sense. I would agree with that because I think, you know, a lot of the, the younger generation, I know that makes me sound like I'm like 80 years old, but like, like genre distinctions aren't as important. I mean, it's not like, you know, I think back in the 90s, like your identity was so tied to the kind of music you listen to. You know, like I listen to indie rock or I listen to, you know, grunge, you know, and now it just seems like it's, it's people are a lot more open to listening to anything and everything. You know, I think people's tastes are a little bit more, I guess, diverse and a little bit more open-minded maybe than they might have been then. And I think you're right. That's kind of the, I mean, that's what I remember or what I, my biggest takeaway from the 90s tends to be is just like the, the diversity of artists, like even on the radio, like you think about alternative music. And I mean, I remember hearing Shaggy on our alternative radio station. I remember hearing Ace of Base on all, like the early stuff on our alternative station. That would never happen today. But there was just sort of that, like, you know, oh, we'll just throw it to the wall and see what sticks kind of attitude, you know, and kind of like what, what bringing back to Alanis. I mean, that's what she kind of did, you know. I mean, that was a huge record, but that was totally different. And, it, and I looked at the, the charts for the, the 2000s and then the 2010, and it, it feels like we've gone back to pretty much... What's interesting, actually, is the charts are almost... 50-50, I would say actually more like 60-40 dominated by women. If you look at like 2010 to current, the number one album is Adele, 21. The number three and five albums are Taylor Swift. Numbers, uh, number four album is Lady Antebellum, which is, that's a, 
they, I, I'm not really that familiar with that band, but I believe it's a female lead singer with that band. Yeah. That's a country it's, band. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're like okay. Co-ed. Mm-hmm. Okay. You'll, you'll also notice that no, none of these artists are rock artists. Right. You have <laughs> yeah. Katy Perry. You have Lady Gaga twice. You have actually Susan Boyle is in there. Um, Nicki Minaj and Rihanna in the top 25. There's nobody who would be considered alternative or rock in that list. And in fact, the last time that happened, if if you go back to the the aughts, you had 11 women in the top 25, which is the most of the last four decades. But they all occurred within the first two years between 2000 and 2002. Huh. Um, Nora Jones had a humongous album, 22 million copies of Come Away With Me that was sold in 2002. And actually some of the albums that were sold in the 2000s were ones that were released in late 99, like Dido's uh, No Angel, that sold 14 million copies in the 2000s. That came out in 99. And um, a Celine Dion Greatest Hits, a decade of song all the way, 15 million copies. And so, and I, I'm sure some of that has to do with just the decline of albums in general. If you actually look at the numbers, um, between Taylor Swift's um, albums before 1965, I only we only did 2010 to 2014 since this year is not complete. You mean you mean 1989? Or, yeah, Taylor, what, what did Taylor, I say? She, she was recording in 1965. That's really impressive. I'm thinking I'm thinking of the wigs. That's why that came up. Um, Taylor Swift's album "Speak Now" and "Red," those two albums total eight million copies, and she's in the number three and five spots for the last five years before 1989 came out. That's not even half of, or that's about half of what Alanis did with Jagged Little Pill. So the numbers in terms of total album sales are obviously significantly down. But in terms of overall representation, women are doing much better. So I don't know what you can extrapolate from that, other than when the public is buying albums, they tend to be buying them in equal distribution between men and women. But rock is pretty much absent from the chart completely. Unless you throw in like the random Black Keys album that makes like the top 200 or something like that. Well, the the 90s is the last time that rock music has connected with women in large numbers. And that's why rock music is dead because it's it's male centric now. It no longer connects with women at all. Now it's country music and R&B and pop. So that's, you know, when people are like, why doesn't rock music sell? I don't understand. It's because... It only appeals to half the population. That's why, <laughs> like, it's not a huge mystery here. Um, I I don't know though. I mean, I think, I think you know, I, you, I, I don't yeah, agree with that. yeah, I don't agree with that either. I mean, that's you know, you look at something like, oh God, what is the fest in Columbus that happens every year? And I'm totally it's in May, totally blanking on the name right now. Rock, Rock on, on the range. range. Rock on the range. You know, I've been to Rock on the Range in the past, and while a lot of the artists tend to be male, there are a lot of women who still love hard rock and metal. That is still, they are still a huge but audience. aren't they predominantly that. all, like, legacy? Like, it's like Stone Table Pilots no. and Soundgarden and those sorts of bands. What about, like, what about Kylesa? Kylesa? No. Yeah, well, and there's, well, like, I'm, Five Finger I'm, Death Punch and, uh, you know, um, I'm blanking, Lizzie Hailstorm. Hailstorm's huge. Oh, yeah. And they're fronted by an, uh, Lizzie Hale, who's an awesome guitar player and an awesome vocalist. Yeah, I mean, I, there are a ton of great female artists. They're definitely women that go to the shows i'm saying like to get it to be like you know hailstorm is not poison hailstorm is not you know brian adams hailstorm is not 
Like I'm talking like huge pop appeal. You know what I mean? Like it's always going to be, if it stays the way it is, it's sort of like second tier. Um, you know, you can, you can have a, a career and it's not, I'm not saying it's a hundred percent men at the, at the shows. I'm just saying it doesn't broadly, it, rock music no longer broadly appeals to. Also, maybe we're getting a little off, off base and we should be talking about the bands that like we think might have influenced the current generation as opposed to talking about <laughs> whether the current, <laughs> current landscape is good point well represented or not. Yeah. Excellent. So what do you think about that then? In terms of so bands I, that were what what bands were from the '90s? What artists and or bands do you think that are, in terms of female artists, are making made an impact on the current decade or the last decade of artists? So, so I've got three that I think I, I don't think they influence like the big huge sellers, but um, I have a uh, Juliana Hatfield, yes, uh, yep. throwing mu- throwing muses, and Ani DeFranco. Okay, justify oh, those one. picks. Kind of three being like late 80s, early 90s that I think influenced a certain generation that came into the 90s of the female-fronted band variety. Okay. Who do you see as, as the, I guess, the lineage? Where Where is Juliana Hatfield's influence or, or Kirsten Hirsch's or so, Tanya Donnelly's influence? Where is that being spread to? So I, th- I, think, I think the key is like, Julian Hatfield and Kim Gordon are like, and uh, Kim Deal, like those to me are the Holy Trinity. Those are the three uh, women in rock previous to the 90s that showed that um, a woman could be in a band and not just be a bit player in a band, but actually construct a band and give a band its absolute full characterization. Okay. Like, I would say an example of a band that I think meets that criteria would be like bully are you guys familiar with that band oh yeah mm-hmm. but speedy that's ortiz speedy ortiz is, a, is another one any others that you guys think can, can think of well it's funny you mentioned bully and speedy ortiz because they are both almost picture perfect examples of bands that are um replicating the best things of the 90s and the funny thing is both of them have lead like leads that are not of the 90s but it just just so happens that they happen to embody that ideal, which I don't know. If, I don't know if that means that they're reductive or if it means that they're just the '90s were a time when things were honest and true. Like I, I, I'm I'm still actually struggling with that. Where do we put Courtney Love? I mean, I, I don't know. She seems to be the most like known, right? I think everybody pop culture wise, like that's the first person everybody thinks of. And I don't know. Has she had an influence? Do you see other I artists? Mean, I think this year she toured this summer with Lana Del Rey and I absolutely see the parallels between like when they actually toured, I was like, that's so smart. Why did that not happen before? You know, because both of them are just such larger than life personalities, but yet, you know, you can kind of project what you want onto them, you know, and they're just both like, they just kind of do whatever they want. And they're just sort of like, "Eh, you know, we don't, we do not care at all. What do you think about me? One 
one of them is really, really, really smart, and the other one is not. Well, Lana Del Rey actually is very smart. Like, I've actually listened to interviews with her, and she, like... I didn't, I didn't about say which one, one I was saying was which. <laughs> <laughs> I think both women are smart, actually. Like, seriously. I mean, Courtney, you know, bless her heart, she knew, you know, she knew exactly what she wanted to do, you know? I mean, you figure 20 years later, we're still talking about Courtney Love a lot. You know, you don't you don't do that unless you're doing something right promotionally with yourself. I mean, I think one artist that is a, a real spiritual descendant just on a lot of different people, Shirley Manson Garbage. I mean, obviously, Garbage is still around and still touring and, and doing all sorts of different things. But just kind of her brand of feminism and just kind of attitude. I mean, she was actually he actually talked about Miley Cyrus in a recent interview about how much she kind of, you know, related to and admired what Miley was doing. You know, because she was like, I was doing that 20 years ago. Like, you know, she was very complimentary before that. Actually, so I think thanks, that for, just... thanks for running up uh, Shirley and Garbage, only because, um, one, they're about to go on their, like, victory tour around the 20th anniversary of the first album, which yep. I still think is amazing because she was a front person for a band that was three superstar producers, and she still manages to, like, be as badass as she is. And constantly like overrun anything they have to say about anything. I it's it's I, I'm really they're coming through Chicago in a couple of weeks and I'm very much looking forward to the show. Yeah, I'm actually going to the show, so I totally I'm with you right there. I'm I'm traveling for it. One of my favorite records from the '90s is uh, the band Angelfish, which was her first band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And that to me it even more pronounces like that's all about her. You know, it's. The other personalities of garbage, you know, they're they're not there. It's just completely about her. I think it's a brilliant record. I want to bring up some comments that our Facebook posters um, left for us, and I think this will allow us to get into some other territory. One was uh, Christine Calandra brought up, and, and we did do this, but I think we could probably expand a little bit. She said, "Please bring, please be sure to include Veruca Salt in the discussion." Veruca Salt, to me, are, are kind of an anomaly. Uh, I think there were a few other bands that did this. You know, this was a band, not just that they were a, a hard rock band, essentially, um, that traced you know, their sound back to you know, a lot of Chicago bands that have are guitar-based. I, don't, I, I guess technically Cheap Trick's not Chicago-based or Rockford. But, um, we, we, we accept them. We you accept them? Okay. But they also sang Harmony. Which was not something that a lot of bands did in the '90s. That was that was not a '90s um, sound. You know, it was it was more harkened back to the, like the '70s, where you had the front man and your guitar player and that sort of lineup with four or five people in the band. Um, whereas you had, you know, two singers in that band, two songwriters, and then so you kind of have the parallel to then like Heart. Um, which I think is an interesting that, that band has also come up as like a, a an influence upon the '90s artists in terms of how they proceeded in the '90s. Is that a band that you think? I just want to kind of get into the what ifs here a little bit. Um, the second album did not do as well. It had the, the lead single "Volcano Girls," and then the band kind of imploded. You know, and we've talked to Louise about this about for various reasons why, um, with the drummer leaving the band and things falling apart they came back with a great reunion record but they also had a bunch of louise basically solo records under the vruca salt name um that sort of coincided with the collapse not the collapse but the shift in alternative music 97 again 
is a big year. Also, Eric J. Peterson would bring up that that's also a year after the uh, Telecommunications Act where Clear Vision or Clear Channel, excuse me, uh, Clear Clear Channel gets to gobble up radio stations across the country and homogenize all their playlists, pushing out a lot of artists. Do you think that Veruca Salt could have become a legacy, not a legacy band, but a band like Pearl Jam that could have continued? Or was that kind of destined to blow up like a lot of 90s bands did it in by the end of the decade where the, the landscape changed? Okay, at, at, at the risk of Louise never speaking to me again, <laughs> I'm going to say no. Because what Baruch Assault turned into at that point was not good. Um, and I actually have plenty of good friends that ended up playing in the later generations of Baruch Assault. However, the fact that Baruch Assault is now what they are now is amazing. Like, mm-hmm. it's almost like they did it against the odds. Like, this is the sort of reunion that you never expected. You never expect a band to go, okay, we imploded. We, we hobbled along with, like, a bunch of session musicians for years and years and years. And then we finally get back together and we record what is possibly the best album of our entire lives. Like, that doesn't yeah. that doesn't usually happen. Right. So I'm not sure Verkasalt's the best example of, like, trying to figure out how that works. Because they are an outlier in all means. Okay. I mean, I will co-sign that. Start, like, that, Baruch- start that blue, like, your entire setup. <laughs> That's all right. That's I mean, right. I will co-sign now that Baruch Assault, like, their new record is amazing. Like, they mm-hmm. are, like, fantastic. Like, I, you know, when they put out the Record Store Day single a couple of years ago, we bought it and we're like, wow, this is pretty amazing. Because, you know, you never know what to expect when a band that's away for so long gets back together. And it was great. Um, you know, I, I feel like there were so, honestly, so few bands from the 90s that did kind of turn into Pearl Jam. I mean, obviously, Nirvana never had the chance. Um, unfortunately, you know, Foo Fighters did, you know, Pearl Jam did. I mean, to a certain extent, Wilco, you know, because they started like 20 years ago. And so they're still going pretty strong, not maybe on the level of Pearl Jam. But I mean, when you think about it, there, you know, are very few acts from that era that really did sort of manage to kind of survive, at least in like the, you know, the alt rock. I mean, you think about like, you know, Deftones are still touring. Okay. You know, but like Limp Bizkit imploded. You know, Corn Corn is actually still going strong. I Green guess. Day. Totally for me. That's true. You know Green what? Day. Actually, yeah. female-led uh, bands. We do have one L7. They just resurged, had a resurgence, and I just saw them at Riot Fest a couple weeks ago, and they killed. Like awesome. they were, they were so good. They were better than I remember them being in the nineties. Uh, so, I have another one that just got back together, and it was actually brought up by Scott Russell Hallgram. He said in reference to the collage that I made for this, uh, the artwork for this episode, he said, I don't see babes in Toyland in that collage. They and- also, I just saw them and they were so fucking good too. Well, here's his statement though. And this is, this is where it's going to cause some controversy. He says, in my opinion, riot girl begins and ends with babes in Toyland. And then he backs it up and he says, okay, that's a bit much, but I am from Minneapolis. Um, <laughs> So, I I don't think that that's necessarily true. To from what I've read and and documentaries I've watched, Riot Girl more begins with Bikini Kill and Kathleen right. Hanna in the right. Pacific Northwest. Am I, that's right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Also, and then you go overseas and you got like a Huggy Bear. Okay, so we need to talk about where Riot Girl comes in because that's a that's a pretty big and important 
aspect of 90s music, especially the underground and alternative side of it, away from the mainstream and radio aspect of the bands. Um, you have bands that would like follow in the footsteps. Sleater Kinney would be an right. example of, of a band that started out, I guess, with that sound and, and as it, I think evolved and turned into probably one of the best rock bands around right now. The last record that he just put out is pretty amazing, which nobody saw coming, like with Fruit Assault. To me, to me, the big thing about um, Riot Girl was um, the way that it empowered, I don't know, girls at the time to feel that they had something to say. Like, for instance, think about it. If it wasn't for Riot Girl, you wouldn't have Jessica Hopper, who is now the um, editor-in-chief of the Pitchfork uh, Review, and she does. she's a senior editor of Pitchfork. Like, she literally came into writing about music because she was told by somebody in Minneapolis that she shouldn't be writing about music. And she was like, well, fuck you. I'm going to write a music anyway. So she made up her own zine. And to me, that is what Riot Girl was all about. It was like females going, you know what? Fuck you. I am totally empowered to do this sort of thing. And I think that Bikini Kill was a heavy part of that. I think that Huggy Bear was a big part of that. And if anything, if you're going to talk about 90s music and um, women in 90s music, I think that is like the biggest thing. Like it gave women the power to write about things they wanted to write about. If that doesn't sound too grandiose. <laughs> Does that sound too grandiose, people? Anybody want no, to... no, I, I mean, that. no, absolutely not. I mean, basically, you know, the whole movement was sort of like, it was sort of kind of against the fact that because punk had gotten so dude-centric and it was just sort of like it really devolved from, you know, the, I guess the early 80s and like the utopian you know it was a very short-lived utopia in the early 80s and basically saying no these are things that are important to talk about like we will talk about feminism we will talk about sexual assault like we will talk about sexual freedom like it was very politicized as well and it was basically women and girls saying no this is important stuff like this is you know we are not you know we are an important part of the conversation and we will be a part of the conversation whether you like it or not and I think that's extremely important. And I think the the biggest shame about it is that how quickly it got misrepresented by the mainstream press, which just really, because, I mean, people stopped talking to the press who were involved in Riot Girl because they were just getting misquoted or misunderstood just so severely. And I think that's the biggest shame, I guess, about it all, is that there were a lot of people who kind of raced to sort of capitalize on it, as, as people are wont to do, like, oh, women doing, you know, things, let's kind of, you know, how cute you know, just kind of basically condescended toward it. Exactly. You know, rather than missing, you know, the point about, you know, the stuff that, that they were actually saying really important things. But yeah, I'm a big Riot Girl proponent, Riot Girl fan. You know, I was, I was not quite old enough to kind of be involved in it. But, you know, in hindsight, having read up a lot on, there's some really, there's a couple of really awesome books that have been written on the movement that are really well-researched and really well done. And... You know, I completely, it's such an important part of the 90s. And there's a documentary on Netflix um, called, I think it's The Punk Singer. Yeah, it's Kathleen, on Kathleen Hanna. Hanna documentary, yeah. which is amazing. Yep. But that's not the only scene in which I'm trying to, I'm going to segue awkwardly. Um, <laughs> Dev, Darren Bevington Leach brought up Elastica, for me, were brilliant. Oh. Their debut album still packs a punch. Hard to believe it's 20 years old old this year okay you can't so here's just the thing of, 
Okay. We can't so, just be a, a U.S. centric. We need to talk about the Brits as well. Okay. Let's so I have, to, I have to talk about Alaska. I love Alaska. I love Justin Frischman. Obviously, from previous podcasts I've been on with you, I love Blur to death. However, it cannot be overlooked the fact that Alaska's first album was basically a um, rehab of Wire's Pink Flags. Some of it. Some of it. Yeah, there's Most a little bit. In it. It. Come on. There's a, a couple few songs. There's a lawsuit involved, but you know, it's, it's <laughs> settled. I, I will say, I will say, in future albums, Justine like stepped outside of that and wrote some other things. But I mean, she obviously loved Wire a lot, which isn't to say that Damon Albarn didn't love the Kinks a lot. Isn't her influence not just as the lead singer and guitar player for Alaska, but that also she was in Suede, and she was a, yep. you know, a driving force in that band, and then she dated da- Damon Albarn and was influential on his songwriting. See, here's, um, here's, here's, here's where I feel you, you, you hit danger territory, because now you you position Justine Frischman as like, she's the muse. She was... She was Dating uh, Brenton Swade for a while. Then Not the muse. She's Melbourne. the puppet master of the entire Britpop movement. She is. She is <laughs> okay. pushing okay. the. That, that, that's much better. She yeah, is pushing all the that. players into the right spot so that the movement actually happens. Because there is, you know, part of Swade were such an anomaly when you look back because of their artistic bent that Oasis and Blur didn't have when they started. You know, Blur, oh, there was much more David Bowie in. Elastica say, and T Rex. They, they, they are David Bowie. Yeah, they're yeah. Like, they wanted to be David Bowie, and you don't have that in what are considered the big Brit pop bands, which are Blur and Oasis. So, and a lot and of that was Beatles, and who wanted to be the Kinks, right. and the Jam, and the Jam. Oh yes, yes, and yes. XTC, and XTC. Right. So, I mean, I love Elastica. I am. I probably can't be like critically neutral on that because like i love that damn record i bought that record and i played the hell out of it and i still play the hell out of it and, and trust me you i'm know. playing devil's advocate but i love yeah. all, all three of those bands like and oh, i yeah me those too. Albums over and over and over again but i'm well aware what their genesis is like i'm not going to pretend like that's not where they're coming from i mean i think the thing is is that most people in america who who were especially were hearing them for the first time probably had no idea they were even ripping off wire just that's, no. I mean, I think, I mean, for like, I had no idea. I mean, I was just a, like 15 year old kid who was like, holy shit, Justine's awesome. She's like sneering in the mirror. This is the greatest thing ever. You know, like it was, you know, but I think the nice thing about them is that once I kind of found out their influences, I went back then. And I think that's one of the coolest things about Elastica is just in terms of, you know, who they toured with and then who their influences were. They really opened my eyes to a lot of different bands, which I think is one of their, you know, best legacies. Yeah, I had the same experience. I, I discovered Wire because of Elastica. What? Yep, I know that yep. sounds ridiculous. That mm-hmm. sounds crazy, but I think me too. Know, I I was not a I was a pretty American focused listener up until that point. I was not listening to a lot of British music or or you know Australian or whatever you want to say. I was pretty much listening to U.S. based music with a little Canadian thrown in there because of Rush and Tragically Hip and um and and, and Sloan. And Sloan, and well, and I didn't get into Sloan until recently. Triumph would probably be Triumph. the and yeah. Helix. 
in Helix. Yes. Um, <laughs> hey, Chip, you're still there. Hey, Chip. <laughs> bringing up the Helix. Thought we lost you. Yeah, no, I was listening to 80s hair metal, so I still have never heard a Wire record. Whoa. Chip. I've never heard a Wire record. I'm pretty close to Chip. I, I've listened to some of it, but... Just put on the Elastica it. record, then you won't. And I love oh. the Elastica record. <laughs> no, I hey. yeah, the Elastica record's great. Hey Chip, I'm 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 gonna unfriend you on Facebook now. <laughs> I'm surprised you haven't done it earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Eric J. Peterson earlier, he said, "I hope you give some guys, hope you guys give some time to the also rands like that dog, Ooh, Seven yes. Year Bitch, oh, yeah. yeah, Sky Cries Mary, yeah, Menson, who was from Norway." Phantom a- Blue and Die Cheerleader. Now I'm familiar with some of those bands. Obviously, that dog and Seven Year Bitch. I- I'm not familiar with some of these other bands. Anybody else that, know? I, that, is, dog is, that dog is still a monster. I mean, Petra Hayden is still doing great. Yeah, stuff. Menson is not a '90s band. Their first album was like 2001. <laughs> okay, but deleted. They're, they're really good. I thought I'd heard of Phantom Blue, and I thought they were like an '80s hair metal band. That's what Am I, I think wrong? Too. Unless it's a different Phantom Blue. I can understand a lot of people want to name their bands Phantom Blue because that's a pretty awesome name. Die Cheerleader, anybody familiar with that band? I know the name. I don't know. I'm not familiar with their music. Yeah, I feel like I saw them on some tour, but... uh, There's some stuff on Apple Music that I sampled. It actually was pretty cool. I was surprised. I mean, just having not ever heard of the band. It was interesting. What about Sky Cries Mary? Yeah, they were in Seattle. Yeah. They were a Seattle band, right? Yeah. I just remember the name. I thought that was a, a Jimi Hendrix song title. I didn't realize it was a band. That's uh, neither here nor there. Um, and then uh, Steve Muzinski, I'm probably slaughtering his name. Uh, he mentioned, uh, he said, give me L7, Babes in Toyland, The Breeders, Bikini Kill, Seven Year Bitch, Hole, Vruk Salt, Elastica, and someone we need to talk about, Liz Fair. Ah, yes. We cannot talk about the 90s without talking about Liz Fair. I don't feel that that would be appropriate. Let's go to our resident Chicago expert, <laughs> Chip Midnight. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just, Where does Liz Fair fit in all of this? Because or she had an interesting guy, trajectory to her career. Or you can talk to the guy that um, actually, um, in the mid-90s, I was at uh, this bar called Danny's. And I was talking to this girl outside, um, putting on what I thought was my A-game. Being super suave, super friendly, um, doing my best to just tell her what an awesome person I was. And she was like, no, I, I got to go home. And I walk inside and the bartender's like, whoa, dude, you just got shot down by Liz Fair. Way to go. <laughs> whoa. Yeah. So that's very bold of you to uh, to share that with us. Well, but the thing is, like going into it, I'm, Liz Fair is one of the first people I wrote about. Um, after writing about Jesus Jones in the early, early, early 90s. And I just viewed her as, as a whole new, I don't, know how to, I don't know how to say it the best way, but she broke the mold of what we all expected, like as far as indie rock went. Like Liz Fair was the fucking be all. Like she killed everything. Every single girl I knew wanted to be her. Every single guy I knew actually wanted to be her. Like <laughs> we... we Everybody loved Liz Fair. One of the things we talked about with John Fine, and I think it's relevant to this discussion, is that there was a, in a lot of ways, the '90s sort of became desexualized as a as a 
overall like lyrical content went, it became a lot more. Uh, not, I don't want to use PC as a term, but that's kind of the what happened with a lot of bands. Um, introspective. Introspective. But my then pain. you had, but you had people like Liz Fair who were not afraid to talk about sexuality in their songs. Um, there weren't a lot of artists who did that, and to me, that made her way more interesting. Even though this, the actual songs sometimes were not necessarily groundbreaking, but what she was singing about became really the focal point. Uh, I didn't care that it was you know a three chord progression that I'd heard fifty times before, but she found a way to make that incredibly interesting. Chip, you were with us on that discussion, on with with yeah. John. Also, don't denigrate the fact that her uh, chords, she very rarely used like familiar three chords, like. Her chord progressions were weird, which was one of the things that made her interesting, right? Well, I, you know, to me, it always sounded like she was playing like pretty straightforward bar chords or or power chords. For most no, of her she, songs. Was, she was always playing weird fingerings because she didn't know how to play guitar. She just like made it up as she went along. And when she finally got like the girly sound tape, she can definitely hear it. And when she got in the studio with Brad Wood, I think he sort of coached her into playing some bar chords, but for the most part, they were still odd, odd chord progressions, which is why I think she's, she's one of the most interesting guitar players of, of the 90s as far as the like female indie rock. Jim, was, was Liz Fair like the first time you heard her, did it instantly click with you? Oh, yeah. Because I remember, so Jim and I have a, a mutual friend, uh, somebody that I dated in college that actually was a huge Liz Fair fan, and it took a while for me. I mean, it was just, I heard it over and over and over. And that's how I ended up becoming a fan. Okay. Um, but, but yeah, I don't think it, it, I don't think it like right off the bat was something that I necessarily liked too much. Yeah. That, that's where, that's where we separated. Cause the first time I heard her stuff and I'm, I still remember like the early, the early girly sound cassette tapes. And I was like, this is amazing. This is something that we haven't heard in a long time. But in context, I mean, I'm coming out of 80s hair metal and early 90s grunge, so um, it took it took me a little while. That's understandable. To... Yes. That's a pretty big leap from, you know, Skid from Row. Aeros- and... From Aerosmith to Liz Fair. Yeah. Right. And it was, yeah, it was probably all because of a girl. <laughs> For real. Just so, just so I have the proper context, Jim, uh, when was this uh, shoot down? When was this? This uh, failed this attempt in like '94. This would okay. Have, this would have been. This would have been the the uh, penult, like Wicker Park area. So this is in between um, Exile and Guyville and Whipsmart. Is that yes? Yes. Okay. Which is when I was. Which is why, in retrospect, I feel like an even bigger idiot because I should have been been like, oh, I know who you are, and hey, you guys, you guys get an exclusive. You finally get the original story. Of me getting shot down by Liz Bear. Congratulations. Now I need to go back and read the lyrics on Whipsmart and see if that came up, if there's ever like a... Uh... I'm sure it did. I'm pretty sure I was so non-consequential, non-consequential <laughs> that that's not ever going to come up. I think we ran through all of the comments from all of the folks that uh, commented on this episode. So we another, put that you know, Sorry, another band I want to bring up from that time period that I actually saw on the tour with Hole and Baruch Assault was Matter Rose. Any Matter, Matter Rose, Rose. I like Matter Rose. I think I have Panic on somewhere. Yeah. I remember the name. I have they're to really go back good. and listen because they're, you know, obviously there are about a billion bands that I still need to go back and listen to that 
we could potentially do for the podcast. So that's on the list because because the name is familiar. Yeah, they actually they so they were on the middle slot on that whole Verkasalt tour, and um, but definitely like not nearly as aggressive or like as heavy as Hole, and actually not so much like Verkasalt either. It's an interesting difference between the, the the three bands on that bill. Together, this is going for a while. Could we talk about the um, Josie the Pussycat soundtrack? I think because that was. I, the, I like, think that was in the two thousand. I feel like I feel like all of nineties female rock culminated in the Josie the Pussycat soundtrack. It was like the most poppy, yeah, forward-thinking, like super catchy thing that came out of that time period. Yes, it did come out in two thousand one. However. It was informed by everything before then. <laughs> it was informed by everything. Adam Schlesinger. And Kay from... Hanley, of course. And, and she's Kay... the singer. I mean, yeah. that's yeah. small. Anna Wanaker um, is involved with it. Uh, Adam Duritz. I mean, it is a, it's, <laughs> it is kind of a who's who of uh Which, of by the way, Adam Duritz, folks. The, the best female singer from the 90s. Jason that Faulkner was... has a credit on the record. There's a lot of people on the record that you would have. Like, it's a, Kenny... it's a weird record. Babyface Edmonds. Yep. Barry freaking Gordy. Well, because he, he wrote, he, he's credited for money. That's what I want. That's why. My point being, if you're going to have a full <laughs> point of 90s female-centric rock and roll, the Josie the Pussycat soundtrack is that white hut point of light that it finally comes to. <laughs> so Kay Hanley wrote or, or sang all the vocals, right? <clears throat> yes. Yep. That's interesting. Because they, they had a slight resurgence Thanks to Parks and Recreation. I don't know if you guys watched that show. One of the characters wore a Ladies to Cleo t-shirt repeatedly. Yeah. Yep. And then they ended up playing at a concert. Like in the, I don't know if it was the final season or, or one of the last seasons. There was like a concert in, in Pawnee and Ladies to Cleo played. And there's there's a lot of interesting oddball music. That's, I don't know if you guys ever watched that show. They like, like... Uh, um, Neutral Milk Hotel comes up in that uh, in that show, and Wilco are involved in that show. So when, there's definitely when, some when guys who are '90s people that um, are, were writers. Not involved in the show. That's true. They've been in Portlandia, or at least Jeff Tweedy has, in one of the best uh, skits that they did on that show. Which I don't know if you guys have seen that, but it's been, it's essentially a takedown of Jeff Tweedy, <laughs> which he participated <laughs> in, which is pretty funny. Um, I was just googling Portlandia and Jeff Tweedy, but we're off topic. We we have we have that, gone that's, off topic. That's, that's we've gone way off the reservation. On right, that one. we're off the reservation. Uh, Jane Wheedlin of the Go Go is also on the Josie and the Pussies Pussycat soundtrack. Oh. Is that it? Are we done with uh, with the nineties? Because 
So wait, around the table, how many people attended a Lilith Fair concert? Okay. I did by, not. I did not, I, but by proxy, two, because my wife went to two of them. So, I went, yeah, but you did not go. One by of, proxy. Uh, I went to the one a couple years ago when it when the, it rebooted. I went to that. Now, who was at that? Like, who performed? Um, our date was um, uh, Emmy Lou Harris, Metric, Mary J. Blige, who was amazing, Sarah McLaughlin, and I can't even remember who else. But those are the, that those sounds are the people I remember. That sounds way better than the little fair concerts we ever got. Yeah. And it was so poorly attended, it was embarrassing. It was it was so heartbreaking. Really? Where, was oh, that at yeah. Blossom? It was in St. Louis, actually. Oh, it was St. Louis, there. okay. Yeah. But all the bands were great. And I'm just like, I've never seen Emmylou Harris. I guess I better go to this. And it was fantastic. But Oh, and Courtyard Hounds, which was the Dixie Chicks associated band. But yeah, it was. if there was any doubt that the kind of the dream of the 90s had died, uh, speaking of kind of, with, the, with apologies to Portlandia, we've seen how <laughs> terrible the attendance was at Lilith Fair. I'm sure Lilith Fair killed in Portland. <laughs> but it uh, it just did not carry over to St. Louis. So on on that note, I'm really hoping that the bumper music outside of here comes is the dream is over. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already queuing that up so that it's ready to to go. Let's end this with let's talk about favorite albums by female artists in the 90s. Just so that some of the people who who are maybe younger listening to this podcast I know there's one or two people out there that are, are not as old as I am, uh, but actually might be discovering some new music. Um, if you were going to suggest an album uh, that you really liked from the 90s, what would you be uh, suggesting they check out? Chip, I'll start with you. Oh, man. I've got a handful. You go just, ahead. You just want more? Oh, I, I would go. Give me your number one, and then you can n- name a few runners-up. I'll let you um, do that. Oh, man. I would go American Thighs, Brook Assault. Like I said, Matter Rose, Letters to Cleo, Fiona Apple. She was 90s, right? Mm-hmm, yes. Absolutely. Uh, all those I still listen to. Oh, Belly. I listen to all those still a lot. Oh, Belly's I, second album. Was it Star? King. Yeah, King was King. 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 The one that was produced by the same guy that produced all the Who albums. Oh. Which might be too much information, but so good. Who produced all the Who albums? Pete Townsend? No, um, God, what's his name? I can't remember. Sorry, guys. That's all right. I just remember. I just remember when King came out. It was like the Who producer. I was like, what? But one one thing I will say that I didn't jump in earlier and say when you're talking about the the genres definitely um, being siloed is in the '90s. I had an entire shelf of CDs that I had a sticker on that said "female fronted bands." Like, I don't know that I would do that today. Like, I don't know on my iPod that I have stuff differentiated by male, female, heavy, acoustic, whatever. But it was clearly something that I picked out and kind of pulled those aside. So I always knew where they were. Hmm. Glenn Johns, by the way. That's the, it. Yeah, thank you. You're thinking of, thank you so who much. has an excellent book out called Sound Man. Definitely worth a read because of all the work he did with the Stones. Annie, your picks for albums that you would suggest for a youngster to check out. Definitely Juliana Hatfield 3's Become What You Are, which was probably one of my top 20 favorite records of all time. Um, Throwing Muses University. I love that record. That was a very formative record. And I think pretty much any of the Tori Amos records from the 90s, like from Little Earthquakes on to From the Choir Girl Hotel, you can't go wrong with any of them. It's funny that you picked um, that Juliana Hatfield record because 
we have a, a, a neighbor who babysits for us. She's like 15 and she's learning to play guitar. And uh, my wife is giving her guitar and vocal lessons because my wife's a music teacher. And I was like, um, you need to listen to like some some singer songwriters from the 90s that would be, you know, don't listen to like this pop music today. You, should need, you need to listen to some good music like us old people listen to. And I gave her that record. And she's like, two weeks later, she's like, I really like this. So, oh, thank God. Yes, I was you worried. You the new generation, right? I, I'm trying. I'm trying. Jim, your picks. Okay, well, uh, both Annie and Chip had excellent, excellent um, suggestions. I'm going to say Tuscadero, the Pink Animal. Ooh. They were a, a small band out of Washington, D.C. in the early 90s, but their album is absolutely fucking incredibly great. I have that record. I would agree. That's a great record. Uh, I have that record as well. You guys reviewed that record. We did. And I'm just going to leave it at that. It did not go you over did? well. How, how long ago was this? This is like first season. We did not uh, We did not, not share the view that it was... Not turned it out, but I actually have a um, number of you guys' early, early reviews uh, queued up on my iPod. I'm going to have to add it there. So, uh, sorry to take this off track a little bit, but Jim, did you ever see him live? Yes, twice. I, I, actually, I, I, I actually got hung out with the, um, the band um, the last time I was in Chicago, right before they broke up. I love the record, but I was kind of bored by them live, I think. They got the... Okay, so the first record, yeah, they were kind of boring live. When they did the... Um, was it Electro they got signed to? Yeah. When they, they did, like, the bigger tour? They were really good live. Like, obviously, somebody had coached them. Yeah. But, yeah. They seemed very disinterested in being there. <laughs> well, they they were very much indie rock. Dude, yes. it was the 90s. Everybody yes. was disinterested in being anywhere. Yes. They were like, what's the, oh. what's the point? They were like, oh shit, now we have to do something? Ah, fine. Yeah. But they were great. And that album's great. I mean, yes. I highly recommend it. So I have to share, just because this name came up, um, this quick story. I was at CMJ in New York in... I guess it was fall of 97, maybe 96. I'm too old to remember the exact year. 96 or 97. Anyway, I'm there with my music director, and he says, hey, I'm going to check out this, I don't remember if he said girl or woman or whatever. So I'm going to check out this woman, plays piano. It's supposed to be pretty good. She's not signed yet. You want to go? And I'm like, no, I'm going to go see Wesley Willis. So I went to see <laughs> Wesley Willis at C- CBGB's, and then he came back and, he, and I was like, oh, how was that? How was how was that piano show? And he's like, it's pretty good. I'm like, what's your name? She goes, Fiona Apple. <laughs> <laughs> so I missed my chance to see Fiona Apple in a bar by herself playing piano. So oh, that's right up with me. Um, I was DJing one night in Chicago and uh, some friends of mine were playing at Double Door. And I had a choice between. Do I want to go see this band, Stella Star? Which I really liked Stella Star at the time. So I went to go see Stella Star, and I went saw the show, went back, sent my other DJ partner to watch the second half of the show. He comes back, he's like, so this band, The Killers, was pretty good. <laughs> I totally saw that tour. I totally remember that. That was really weird, seeing them. I saw them at the Middle East downstairs in Boston, and Brandon Flowers played a little keyboard on stage. Because I like Stella Star too. Like I've never seen them. You know, there's we all make bad decisions. 
Yes, we do. I'm going to I'm going to go with my albums. I'm going to go Juliana Hatfield, but I actually like only in everything a lot. I'm going to go with uh if I don't my wife will decapitate me. Uh Mazzy Stars, so tonight oh, yeah. that I might see oh, that's yeah. that is an album that she constantly reminds me that I need to review for the re- for the show. And then um Garbage, the first Garbage record is yep, and we brought that up, but that's a really good record. So I think we have done justice to this episode. I think that uh, hopefully we've spurred some discussion that people will have about their favorite albums, artists, their takes on the the uh, the, the decade in general, and how different it was from the decade before it and the decade after it. So I've I've hopefully stuck my foot in my mouth um, at least twice. You what? Said <laughs> I've hopefully stuck my foot in my my mouth at least twice. What he's saying is. We're dealing to with recap, a, we're talking about Liz Fair and Veruca Salt. Right, we're dealing there with you the su- subject, so I'm like, I'm figuring that I must have said something awful. <laughs> I think that that's probably true, but it'll get, you know, forgotten in, uh, well, and this lives on the internet forever. Um, people won't, uh, people won't remember. They'll remember Jay more than you. Making blanket <laughs> statements while drinking vodka, and I can say that because he's not on anymore. He had to go teach his class. So um, we need to thank, or I need to thank, our roundtable Annie Zaleski joining us from Cleveland, Ohio area. Uh, thank you, Annie, for coming on. And um, we should be looking for the various articles. I don't even know where you'd find time to. You constantly are pumping out articles. <laughs> All over the place. Every day I see a new one popping up on your Twitter feed. I'm like, geez. It's like you do this for a living or something. I can't even understand. I know. It's crazy. It's totally crazy. I thought nobody makes a living doing what you're doing, but apparently you are doing it. So I'm trying. Huzzah to you. Thank Um, you. And everybody needs to check out. I think you have it pinned on your your Twitter feed, but the the Columbia House article for AV Club is a absolute masterpiece. That was so much fun. That was so much fun. Wait a minute, you wrote that? That was me, yep. That's amazing. Yep. Jim, you are in the presence of greatness. I don't know if you know that. I I, I, I don't even know why you guys have me on here now. I have forwarded that article to so many people. Like, dude, you got to read this. This is is amazing. Because so many people that I knew, we ripped off Columbia House and BMG of so many CDs in the 90s that we are probably partially responsible for their downfall. So... I don't. Know, I still didn't understand their business model at all. But I think that's why it ed- ended up finally failing, just because it was just like it just didn't make any sense, and right. because of all the people who ripped them off. Yeah, it oh, is yeah. the most confounding business model of all time. It would be the only thing that would be more confounding is if they literally just gave everything away for free and were just like hoping people would pay them at some point. But... Well, coming out of this um, roundtable, I'm pretty sure we have the next. 90s how did you rip off columbia house <laughs> or which cds did you get for free that you still own how about and that? Are, you, are, you, are you the reason that who the bluefish was so popular <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's not talk about who the bluefish anymore so on twitter annie zaleski uh writer av club salon cleveland scene we mentioned all those before uh we need to thank chip midnight of kidsinterviewbands.com. Chip, who's coming up 
I'm working and we're, we're working on a couple. We'll see. We have uh, maybe, fingers crossed, churches. Oh, cool. Nice. Um, we'll see. I'm not sure. That one hasn't been confirmed. Um, I think next weekend we're doing Cursive and Lighthouse and the Whaler. Uh, got a request in for Grace Potter. Um, Alex Deason from the Damwalls is staying at my house after a house concert in Columbus, so I'm sure we're going to do a Kids Interview Bands interview with him. I will be very looking for, very much looking forward to the Cursive episode. That's one of my favorite bands. Yeah, it should um, be good. I we need to get uh, Tim Casher on the podcast. I'll mention it uh, to him. They they qualify as a '90s because they put out a couple records or a couple releases. I think one album and an EP that came out of the '90s. So we can we can grandfather them into the show. But yeah, I have like the expanded double vinyl ish reissue of the Ugly Organ. I absolutely love that record. So cool. James, does anybody call you James? Is it just for you? Very good by Jim. Just you. Okay. James, Chicago ist senior editor. We can find you at tankboyprime.blogspot.com uh, in addition to the Chicagoist. And then on Twitter at tankboy.com. I don't think I asked previously where did the nickname Tankboy come from? Um, it's an old, old thing. Um, it came out of. When I got my first AOL handle in the early 90s, I was really into um, Deadspin, and I really liked the Jamie Hill at Tank Girl comics. So okay. it just started from there, and then never never went away. Gotcha. I actually, tried, I actually tried to ditch it when I started writing professionally in the early 2000s, and one of the editors that I worked with was like, no, you already have a good brand. Keep it. So now I'm stuck with Tank Boy. <laughs> Hey, at least you have a brand. Apparently. That's, that's, that's uh, you know, people are trying to establish brands all the time. So that's, uh, that's you're one step ahead. I'll take it. There you go. All right. For everyone listening, if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us positive feedback over at iTunes. And, of course, if you have an album you would like to suggest for us to review, uh, head on over to digmeoutpodcast.com and go to the request review page. We only have... Uh, we're in October now, so we only have like four or five open slots for album reviews for the rest of the year. So, because we have some interview interviews coming up and some more roundtables, I know our next one is very exciting to chip. We're going to be dissecting Van Halen in the 1990s. And so, if somebody um, wants to, somebody wants to suggest Jesus Jones Doubt, I'm totally into it. Okay, I mean it's the 90s. It is the 90s. We're open to all sorts of things in the 90s. It doesn't have to just be like our narrow interpretation of alternative. And we have we have been pushed this year. People have pushed some very interesting records on us to review. We are not afraid to tackle things outside of our interpretation of what alternative and indie rock is. So we can do that. Uh, thanks, everyone. Appreciate your time. Everybody uh, have a, a good week coming up. And uh, hopefully the Browns will make the smart move and bench Johnny or bench uh, Josh McCown and start Johnny Manziel next week. I doubt that will happen because they are the Browns. I don't even uh, know that. That's okay. <laughs> it really doesn't matter who's quarterback at this point. Like it really, it it just you know it just doesn't matter. It'd just make it, it more exciting though. Maybe. You know, you want the crazy guy running around. That looks like he has. Nothing, no idea what's going on, but at least he's winging the ball around as opposed to the broken down old guy who's just trying to stay upright and not get concussed again. So, 
that's my football uh, analysis for the week. Uh, thanks everybody for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode. Of Dig me out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Hours a week at a coffee shop. Right? That died out a long time ago. (laughs) Not in Portland. Portland is a city where young people go to retire.